Hi, everyone, and welcome to the San Francisco Business Times Structures Podcast, where we're digging into the news, policies, and trends in Bay Area real estate. I'm Kevin Trong, the multimedia producer here at the San Francisco Business Times, and I'm here with our two superstar real estate reporters, Blanca Torres and Roland Lee. Happy Thanksgiving, almost. Hi, everybody. <laughs> that's, that, Sorry, I'm... that's your that's your line. Yeah. Try to mix it up a little. I know. Little I, I wasn't. I was like, wait, I'm supposed to say something. <laughs> All right, all right, all right. We're diving full on into the walk with our first topic, partial stake sales, a.k.a. how San Francisco landlords are using a quirk in the state's tax code to avoid millions in property and transfer taxes. Then we're taking a real estate angle to the scourge that took over our city last week with a look at San Francisco's tallest building, Salesforce Tower. And finally, we'll discuss the rise of modular construction in the Bay Area, its challenges, and what wide-scale adoption of the technique would mean for the city's and the state's housing crisis. But first up, I'm going to throw it to Roland, because he recently wrote a cover story on partial building sales that delved into the methods that commercial landlords are using to sell their properties while also skirting millions in transfer and property taxes. So the initial headline to the story was the new 49ers. And besides alluding to our unfortunately gloomy prospects of our local football team, what does that mean in the commercial real estate sense? Sure. So basically, in a traditional deal, you sell 100% of a building, and you pay a transfer tax. And under California state law, the annual property tax will usually go up, and that's based on the value of the building, um, the, the price that you sold it for. And so what what I saw was that a number of these really big office buildings in San Francisco, for example, the Twitter headquarters, uh, the headquarters of Uber and Square, and other really big buildings have been selling these partial stakes. So under state law, if you sell under 50% uh, ownership of a building, you don't have to pay any transfer tax, and your building also doesn't get reassessed, so your annual property tax also doesn't go up. And so what you know, law is making it possible for them to, to actually avoid some of these um, additional taxes? So the transfer tax exemption is pretty much the same everywhere. You know, it's true in New York. As long as you don't sell more than 50%, you don't have to pay any transfer tax. The reassessment part is pretty unique to California because of Prop 13, which was um, passed in 1978. And it basically said that property taxes can only go up um, about as much as inflation does, about 2% each year. The only time that a building's value changes is when it sells. And so a sale is defined as over 50% ownership trading. And so, you know, you, you kind of did a survey of some of these recent deals um, or, or deals that took advantage of this sort of uh, technique um, in San Francisco. But one example that particularly stood out to me was Shorenstein Properties' sale of the building that uh, houses the Twitter HQ building, which is 1355 Market Street. Could you kind of explain a little bit about why that deal is particularly um, striking? Yeah, so that deal, actually 98% of the building was sold for over $900 million. But they had no property taxes, or, or, or no transfer tax, and their property taxes didn't go up at all. So right now the, the city says that um, this building, and actually the next one next to it, is worth about $257 million. So they're paying you know, about a quarter of what they should be paying based on what the actual valuation of the building was. And the, the way they were able to do this is they, were, they sold 49% to one uh, J.P. Morgan affiliate and then 49% to a different one. So these but it separate. was both J.P. Morgan, though. Yeah, so I think there were different funds. I think one was a pension, and then one was kind of this Asian investor-backed one. 
but these were separate LLCs. And basically, the LLC that owns um, the Twitter building is the same. It's been the same for you know, a number of years. But so the, the ownership of that LLC changed from being 100% Shorenstein to 2% Shorenstein and 49% one JP Morgan company and 49% of another. And based on you know, California state law, because no one party got more than 50%, there was no sale. So it was totally legal what they did. So there's actually a push among activists and advocates to, to reverse some of these loopholes that landlords are using, right? Yeah, so it was pretty interesting because actually in 2014, there was a push in the state legislature, um, including actually Tom Amiano, who's then a, a representative of San Francisco, co-authored this bill that would say if any, um, any percentage of a building trades over 90% within three years, no matter how many different buyers buy those chunks, it would count as a sale. So if that had passed, it actually would have um, led to a reassessment with a Twitter building deal. But that actually died in the Senate because the unions uh, were against it, and they actually want to do a bigger reform. And this is what they call split roll. So right now, whether it's a house or an office building or industrial park, uh, no matter what it is in California, under Prop 13, it only changes its value and therefore its annual property taxes if there's a sale. But this would, this um, change would basically mean that all commercial buildings, so office, retail, and industrial, would get reassessed every few years. They haven't, they haven't put out a final kind of time period, but basically would mean that taxes could change more frequently. So, Roland, has there been any research on how much this change would actually make for city and state governments? So, a 2015 study estimated that the whole state would receive nine billion dollars more if properties were reassessed more frequently. And in San Francisco alone, it'd be 691 million. And I'm told that the, those numbers are actually being updated and they'll probably be higher. Now that we see that there's a little bit of uh, pressure in reforming Prop 13, at least on commercial properties, what can um, you know, eagle-eyed viewers look out for when it comes to the ballot? So the groups have not drafted a final proposal yet, but they're planning to either do a ballot measure next year or in 2020, so look out for that. <coughs> Every fall, San Francisco gets taken over by the Salesforce Dreamforce Conference. I think this year it had an estimated 170,000 guests. It's a celebration of the business software company and all things cloud storage, cloud-based, cloud tech. So with the leaves turning orange and the badges turning blue, we thought it would be a good chance to talk about one of the most prominent and possibly controversial structures in San Francisco, Salesforce Tower. Um, so Blanca recently took a tour to the top of Salesforce Tower with our photographer, Todd Johnston, who took a 360 video of the tallest building in San Francisco. So, Blanca, what is life like at the top? Well, the views are stunning. I'm going to be honest. I <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't um, ask you to be anything else. <laughs> I mean, everything else looks tiny in comparison. Like, every other building, you're like... Look at, you know, 555 Cal. Look at Transamerica Pyramid. It looks tiny. And you can even see Millennium Tower, which is, like, I think a block away. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to look like, can you tell if it's leaning or not? I couldn't. But <laughs> um, <laughs> Straight edge kind of yeah. protractor. Well, I mean, I was looking down at it. So, <laughs> um, so what's interesting is Salesforce is going to keep that very top floor, which is the 61st floor. It, they're calling it the Ohana floor, and mm. Ohana means 
family in Hawaiian. And I saw Lilo and Stitch. Dreamforce and Salesforce love like Hawaiian and national park references. <laughs> like Dreamforce was had a hodgepodge of like Hawaiian cultural things like you know the hula dancers and then this whole like park ranger theme and everything was like a trail and so it's kind of you know they had recreated like nature like a big park wait so is the top floor all like nicely done up yet or, or is it still no. being so when we went up there so it's still a shell essentially which is means there's no walls bit built out yet you know no finishing no floors everything's concrete but they've added windows so i also got to do a tour back in april when the building was way less close to completion and we went up in this metal elevator yeah, construction elevator which was pretty scary um, <laughs> i mean it's not it just made me nervous okay mm -hmm. um and and then you get up there and there was no windows and so you could feel like the wind at a thousand feet in the air which is different um so this time they have windows so it's you know it's starting to feel a lot more like an observation area kind of reminded me of when you go to the Space Needle in Seattle and you look down and you see the city and, and that's not even that high. Um, but so, you know, now that, that the tower is getting closer to completion, you know, Roland reported recently that they're about 98% leased um, or have commitments for that much of their space, you know, 1.4 million square feet. That's, that's a lot of occupancy. Um, so now it's it's starting to feel real, you know, that we have this super tall building. And I was in Mission Bay today, and I, you know, was on, like, 3rd Street, and I look over, and there's Salesforce Tower. Like, it's the only thing you can see from the financial district, and it's, like, way higher than AT&T Park. So it's definitely, to me, like, I, I've started noticing it a lot more now when I'm in different parts of the city, and you just look over and like, oh, there it is. It has like, become a bit of a landmark, you know. I always like look that direction to figure out where I am almost because it is like a, a navigation point within the city now because it's you can see it from it literally everywhere around the bay practically. Roland, you've reported on this. How much space does Salesforce have? So they have 881,000 square feet after extending their lease or expanding their lease earlier this year. We also have three of the four corners at first admission. The remaining corner is Millennium Tower. So, you know, when we talked to them a few years ago, they were talking about doing this urban campus and really having having their presence in the heart of downtown. And that was why, you know, they had originally wanted to go to, down to Mission Bay, where actually Uber is building their headquarters. Um, but then they kind of reversed course and decided to invest, you know, kind of at this way more central kind of core location where there's actually a lot more transit, which I think is a big benefit. Yeah, so uh, the person giving the tour uh, to you, Blanca, was Salesforce head of head of real estate, and, and she kind of talked a little bit about the philosophy of the company and kind of developing urban campus. Correct. So Salesforce is going to have about forty five hundred employees in Salesforce Tower, and they're expecting to have about ten thousand employees in San Francisco in about three years. So less than half of their total workforce will be in that building. So it is like obviously. A hugely important um, building for them but it's it's very symbolic right because it's it's the tallest tower in San Francisco they're the biggest single tenant in a single building they're you know it's just like they are really dominating um, the real estate scene 
and they're putting their name also on the transit center and the park associated with the Trans Bay Center. Um, well, one of the things that I kind of find interesting is because they've taken that, you know, section of, of Trans Bay um, for themselves with regards to the naming, um, a lot of people are mistaking that they're the actual developers of the mm-hmm. of that area. And I mean, could you clear that up? Like, who are the people actually building these things? Well, Salesforce Towers developers are Boston Properties, who owns 95%, and then Heinz, which owns 5%. But Heinz was the original developer for the site, so they chose the architect, and they sort of started the development process, you know, the broader vision for that site. Yeah, and actually about 10 years ago, there were three proposals, and it was a competition uh, between three different teams as to kind of who would have the, the vision of the site. So, you know, I lived in New York for a long time, and it reminded me quite a bit of the World Trade Center because there was a big competition there after 9-11 to rebuild it. And we have sort of this one big tower, a bunch of smaller towers around it, the transit center, a lot of open space. So it's really kind of this parallel where, you know, they've really transformed this part of downtown. But I I do think there's this misperception that Salesforce owns the building, that they're building it. They're not. They're just the main tenant. And there's five or six other tenants going in there. We work... CBRE, which is a brokerage firm. There's a private equity firm that we reported is going there as well. So there's other tenants that are going to be in there, but Salesforce is really going to have the naming rights. They're going to have, you know, the bigger presence is going to be Salesforce. But you mentioned uh, WeWork, for example. I, I heard, I mean, recently uh, we, we reported that WeWork is actually using their, uh, they're, they're taking space in the tower and using it for their West Coast headquarters, correct? Yeah, so they're, they're saying they're going to have a dual headquarters now. So they just bought a building in New York, and this will be their kind of second headquarters. And they're going to have engineers there, actually. Because um, <laughs> even though they're very much about you know real estate and design, um, they have engineers, too, who I think probably design some of their apps and just some of their technology. So, yeah, they, they haven't really talked to me, but they had said that they, you know, they want to have kind of a presence here and have that access to talent as well that um, you know, a lot of the other tech companies do have. Um, so one other reason why I wanted to talk about this topic uh, right now is a recent piece by John, the San Francisco Chronicle's John King on um, Salesforce Tower, the kind of Trans Bay area. Um, and it kind of centered on the tower as a, a symbol of the tech industry's influence right now in, in San Francisco. Do you, do you guys agree with that perception or at least that, um, I guess, you know, representation? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's interesting because traditionally Silicon Valley, because you know, south of us, was very much about kind of single story, kind of sprawling office parks, whereas this is very much you know a skyscraper. It's dense. It's in the middle of downtown. You know, it's not you know, car oriented. So I think that's a big shift, and it's kind of a broader shift where just tech companies of all types are flocking to cities, whereas maybe a few decades ago they had you know big office parks. So I think it's it's kind of those two themes of you know definitely technology is transforming the Bay Area, but also um, cities are becoming just kind of a desirable place to be in. And you know we hear all the time that companies want to be in this urban setting, and they want to be where there's like action on the streets, where you can walk out of your door and of your office, and there's you know things to do, and there's people hanging out, and there's just you know this buzz, this energy that you're not going to have if you're in this big office park, you know, low rise. You know, people talk about how great the Apple campus is, you know, the spaceship, but it 
reportedly has like more parking than it does office space and you know they failed to put a child care center in there which to me is like a stab at working mothers mm-hmm. <laughs> um and which i am one so i notice these things now um <laughs> but anyway and so i mean i i talked with the tech ceo today who was telling me you know that he started his company in palo alto and then once they got some traction they moved to san francisco and you know and it a lot of it is because the workforce wants to be in San Francisco. They don't want to commute to the Silicon Valley. So there's some practical reasons for that. But, I, you know, we hear a lot that people like just this urban environment, and that's really important to them. Yeah, I think it traces, like, larger trends among, like, the millennial generation of, of how they want to live and, and where they want to live. Um, you know, previously people moved out to the suburbs to buy, buy property, and obviously that's still happening. But there's a certain allure that comes from from city living now that I think, um, you know, companies are trying to capitalize on as well. And even I would say from in my own experience, you know, I live in the suburbs and I come to work in downtown San Francisco, and it's kind of a nice little break from, mm-hmm. <laughs> from you know, the, the like, the yes, the abundant parking and, <laughs> and trees. I, I like and having to fight people for parking. Well, I don't have to drive. I, I'm a BART person. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the other day someone was joking with me about driving to work, and I was like, I don't drive to work. Are you crazy? Like, <laughs> who does that? That's so... Quotidian, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think one challenge, though, for Transbay is the idea of can it be a 24-hour community? Because if you look at North Financial District right now, basically by 5 p.m. it's pretty much emptied out. Um, you know, a lot of the um, restaurants around us close at 3 p.m. after lunch. So the real challenge for the city is, you know, can we make this a lively mixed-use, you know, 24-hour or at least you know, 9 to 9 p.m. community and you know, some of the challenges will be getting enough retail there and restaurants to kind of keep the you know, activities going past the workday. Well, it's interesting to me also because basically this is a submarket of SOMA. And SOMA is this broad term, but and it's interesting because there's so many like little submarkets that people talk about, like mid market, right? And and the transformation that's there, which is arguably good or bad or or successful or not and I think Soma you know has had a ton of development like the residential development there's way outpaces the rest of the city and yet at the same time they're trying so hard to make it feel like a real neighborhood and you know when we do stories about hot residential neighborhoods Soma's never like the hot residential neighborhood where people are outbidding each other by hundreds of thousands of dollars to get a home Mm -hmm. like that happens in neighborhoods like the Noe Valleys the Sunsets the Rich Richmond's Um, so these other really established residential neighborhoods that's where people really want to live not that people don't want to live in Soma but it's just totally different feel and you know there's there's like Rincon Hill that just got like a super high-end grocery store doesn't have a you know, just but they're like, trying to do the rebranding and stuff, too. I mean, what they're trying to do, it seems like, develop up you know, their commercial and residential space while at the same time try to create some sort of neighborhood feel. And, and the question is whether you can do that artificially, really. Yeah, or how long it's going to take. Yeah. Or how much residential do you need to have a critical mass? You know, I mean, Transbay is adding, 
I forget, like a few thousand, several thousand homes. So, I mean, that's a lot of people. That well, you see neighborhoods like the Mission or Richmond or whatever, those developed over decades organically. Um, it's and, a little different. And I mean, a lot of these buildings are high rises and, you know, that maybe, you know, you may have great views, but that maybe makes it harder to get your kind of neighborhood corner store or your, you know, you have to be able to afford the retail rent in the ground floor. So we'll have to see, yeah, it's gonna be interesting. Well, we're going to continue this discussion um, along with our publication of our trans-based special issue in uh, December, and obviously we're going to be doing a podcast on that as well, talking with our uh, retail and hospitality reporter along with our, uh, our favorite real estate reporters here about the topic. Modular construction is a building technique where a building is largely constructed off-site before being shipped to a project location for final assembly. Proponents of the technique tout faster construction times, better construction quality management, and more sustainable design, and it's being increasingly pointed to as a part of a solution for the region's and state's housing crisis by making it possible to build a lot of housing quicker. So, Roland, you recently wrote about a slate of projects from holiday development in West Oakland utilizing the technique. Could you explain a little bit about the projects and what you learned from your reporting? Sure. So, Holiday Development has been doing projects in West Oakland for uh, almost two decades, but these will be its first modular projects in the area. Uh, so, Rick Holiday, who's a longtime developer, has a factory in Vallejo. Uh, it's called Factory OS, and he's working with um, carpenters, uh, union workers, uh, as well as Canon constructors, who have done a bunch of modular in the region. And the idea is that you can build these buildings by assembling you know, rooms and hallways up in Vallejo and then trucking those components down to the site in West Oakland and then assembling the rest there. So he's saying that this will make the cost about 20% cheaper and the uh, timeline for construction will be you know, as, as much as twice as fast. So they can complete their first project in about 10 to 11 months versus traditional construction, which would be about 24 months. So it has a you know pretty big potential to make it a lot faster to build housing, which you know is is very needed in this supply constrained area. So what are these projects actually like, um, Blanca? I know that you uh, toured a modular construction project in Soma, correct? By by Panoramic Interests. Yes. So that was one of Patrick Kennedy's, who's the head of Panoramic Interests. That was one of his first modular projects and I think it was like 30 something units and it's on Harriet Street right off of 7th um, and Folsom area in um, in Soma and he put it on this tiny site I think it was a mechanic shop or something mm-hmm. before that or a parking lot and his idea at the time he was really pushing micro units and he was would actually use that term and he was basically saying use that term proudly almost yes and and he was like he was basically saying you know we have all these small sites throughout the bay area it's an urban area for developers you know coming across an acre is like a rare thing so he was thinking you know how are we going to build more housing how are you going to do more developments unless you start thinking small and he's very like the time was like you know small is beautiful and <laughs> and when, when so when I toured this building I mean it didn't feel like it wasn't um, it didn't feel any different from any other new building hmm. it was just but these were small units they were really small studios I want to say like two to three hundred square feet 
And they were designed in a way, you know, with the Murphy beds, with desks and tables that folded up so that you could, you know, use your space in different ways. It had a lot of built-in, like, cabinets and shelves. And there was, like, a bike closet because the idea was people living in this building were not going to drive. So I think um, with modular, you know, I, I feel like we're hearing about it just more and more every day. And... Years ago, when you talked about modular, there weren't a lot of factories, there weren't a lot of people building it. And so it was kind of like the technology of the future, right? And it just kind of makes sense, right? Like, why would you, you know, if, if you're building an apartment building where all, a lot of the units are the same, why not just replicate them in a factory, especially with construction costs being so high? You know, we've done a couple of interviews recently with construction CEOs who have said, you know, the costs are getting out of control and clients are like, I'm not going to keep, you know, paying these high costs to build a building every time. So it, it, it's almost like the industry is being forced to be innovative. And some companies, you know, like DPR Construction, we just did a profile with them. You know, they're like, we're embracing uh, modular. We're working with the unions who have traditionally opposed modular, um, you still need a contractor to assemble the buildings and, and the different structures. So it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, just how it starts really playing out. Yeah, so, so you, you mentioned some construction companies working with um, unions in order to align their interests in a way that, you know, you can get union work for some of these things. But is there still a, a big labor pushback? Um, against some of these, you know, modular constructions, which are faster, generally lower cost constructions. Yes, you're definitely seeing uh, kind of a split in that, for example, with Rick Holiday, the Carpenters local in San Francisco and Sonoma County, I think they've both signed on to work in this factory, but the San Francisco trades are still very much against the concept. And, you know, they want, I guess, you know, union level wages, uh, you know, no offsite assembly like that. It's basically jobs within San Francisco and staying in San Francisco. Um, so the one exception is that the one exception is that there is a uh, parking garage in Soma that the government owns, and there's homeless housing planned there. And the the trades have basically said we will not support this project, but we will not oppose it, and we'll basically let it happen this one time because it's for the homeless. Interestingly enough, I you know when when you hear about um, modular housing, it's a lot of times it's brought up in conjunction with. You know, housing homeless people or temporary homeless people or temporary housing for for uh, a home the homeless population. Why do you think that um, you know we're okay with that as a generally it seems politically um, with with using modular housing construction? So we haven't really seen modular housing being used for homeless housing. Uh, we've seen more temporary uses like navigation centers, which are just you know, kind of taking over an existing space and converting it into uh, basically just like bedrolls on the floor. And then we've seen uh, Oakland just passed an ordinance to do kind of these tough sheds, the temporary storage sheds, and using those as homeless housing for the winter. So I think you know modular housing would be you know, pretty close to traditional construction. It would be a permanent home, you know, permanent structure, and hopefully you know, at a lower cost and a quicker delivery compared to traditional housing. So it could really you know, help a lot in this homeless crisis, homelessness crisis that we're facing right now in the Bay Area. One of the concerns, I think, from a person outside of the the market would say, you know, if we're going to be 
essentially constructing these like Lego blocks, there's going to be an ugly design that that's more uh, you know equivalent to like the boxy structures we're seeing in some like Asian cities rather than something unique. It's really more about like what part of a building could you build on an assembly line and then transport and, and assemble, mm-hmm. you know, versus having people you know do construction from the ground up which as we've noticed is becoming just more and more expensive and difficult to do um, not just cost-wise but there's just not even enough for labor I mean contractors say that all the time that they have a shortage of of workers and qualified skilled workers like carpenters and um, and uh, you know apparently there's not enough people going to vocational training schools for those trades so um, there's a lot of concerns out there. Thank you for listening to the San Francisco Business Times Structures podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Kevin B. Trong, at Roland SF, and at Blanca Writes. You can also email us at sanfrancisco at bizjournals.com. You can also follow our coverage online at sanfranciscobusinesstimes.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash sfbusinesstimes. We really appreciate all your feedback, so please keep it coming with tips, suggestions for guests, rants, or critiques, and an extra request to please rate us on iTunes. It really helps us get onto more people's radars. Thanks again for listening, and please subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes if you're interested in getting the latest in Bay Area real estate news straight into your earphones.